Howdy, listener, and welcome to Your Dog's Best Life. This is Leanne, and today we're going to be talking to Maggie. Um, so uh, first, a little news, because we always try to do a little bit of news. Here in Arizona, uh, our skies are white because of all the smoke from California, but Maggie's actually in California, so I thought it'd be interesting to find out. She's actually up near the bay, and there's a lot of the fires are up up north. I just read today there were 500 fires burning in California. So um, let's see what's going on with Maggie. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Leanne. So um, I'm in the, the Lightning Complex fire. I'm, I'm kind of right in the middle of them. So uh, to the south of me, uh, there's a really large fire that is considered the third largest in California history. And then um, I'm preparing an uh, evacuation uh, notice for the, the fire uh, to the the west of me, which is the second largest fire in Californian history. And so, yeah, the sky is just, is, is white. It's hazy and it's hard to breathe. The schools have been closed. Um, my neighbors are, are preparing for their evacu evacuation notice. And then, you know, we're next in line. So we're right, right about, I'd say as the crow flies about a mile away from the active uh, fire boundary. So now between in that mile, are there, are there, is it just housing? Is it, is it brush? Is it the chaparral stuff? So um, we have these huge open space uh, parks. And so um, there, I would say, gosh, uh, within about uh, a half a mile from me is kind of that park boundary. And then it's all residential area. Yeah. And so and they got, and I heard the firefighters there just stretch so thin that there's just nothing to stop yeah. these fires. Yeah, and we're expecting more dry lightning, which is a really rare occurrence, uh, but we're expecting that to today, actually. <sighs> so it started at 5 a.m. the morning, and I think it's continuing till 5 p.m. tonight. So we'll just oh, see. Yeah, yeah. Currently, the fire uh, nearest to me is 10% contained, and uh, the fire uh, right below where I'm at um, is to the south is, I think, a 5% contained at this point. Yeah, and that really is nothing. I mean, that's that's really saying pretty much that this part's so burned out that they they're <laughs> they know the fire can't go back that direction is what that usually means. Because um, we evacuated from here. We lost three houses up here three years ago. And we had actually evacuated a week prior for a different fire and just brought our back stu our stuff back three days prior to the fire that actually burned the houses up here. So this is all, unfortunately, fire country. And as temperatures continue, I mean, Arizona, I mean, California has been a huge heat wave. Arizona has been we've had the hottest July followed by the hottest August in history. So and I know you guys are probably in the same boat. When it comes when it comes to that yeah yeah we are and then and this is making it very busy at work for me uh because we have all these displaced residents i, I want to say we're over a hundred thousand in the area for people who have evacuated so oh. these animal shelters are opening their doors to board these displaced pets um and our organization's goal is to hopefully help them make room by um 
being able to uh, take their their pets, uh, their adoptables on the floor. So one thing that we can't really do is offer boarding. We're not really set up to that. We can do a little bit at one of our locations that um, is uh, more of an open intake shelter. But uh, yeah, it's uh, there's there's quite a need. And one of our partner shelters, actually, they're not only very close to the fires, but they just had an outbreak of COVID. So it's a double oh whammy. Uh, they've only got three staff members and one of them has COVID and the all the others are um, now in isolation and, you know, they're waiting for testing or symptoms to develop. So they have to close their shelter. And I was actually planning a run to go to these shelters and basically empty them out um, on Monday. But the the two roads that I need to take to get there are about to be closed. So we, we have like a 24-hour Cal Fire hotline. So I was calling the hotline and trying to figure out the routes to get to these, um, these animal shelters. And it looks like the roads are going to be closed. Uh, so we went ahead and canceled the run um, because it's just, it wouldn't be feasible for us to be able to get out there. So it's, it's a dire situation for, for our rescues too. So are any of you, are you got, are any of your locations in, or any of the, the shelters in the area that you're familiar with, are any of them needing to evacuate on, on themselves? No, uh, not in the, the Bay Area itself. So we're looking at like, you know, uh, Modesto and uh, Selma area, the Fresno. So, um, you know, and up a little further north. Uh, so eventually some of these, well, we don't go quite that far north. We mostly go to the Central Valley. Um, those are our adoption partners. And yeah, they're... They're close um, with the the direction that the winds are blowing in right now. Uh, we anticipate that they will go into an evacu evacuation warning uh, in the next several days. So, yeah, it's pretty serious. So then now, because now, now most of your because because, of course, this is coming on the heels of kind of a pandemic. Because I mean, you said your schools were closed. I was shocked that they were open. So did they they open schools in the Bay Area. They kind of did. Um, they they sort of had they had the option of you could enroll your child in 100% in um, remote learning, or you could do a staggered schedule. So it might be five kids instead of 30, and you get Wednesday for in school oh, instruction, or oh, you know whatever cool. it is. Okay. So, they, but the air quality is so hot. It's so um, so poor. So I guess you know what's what's considered. Um, I don't know. I think it's an index of like a hundred is considered, you know, don't go outside at all. And there are areas right now that are like in the 150 or 200. However, they measure that, that air quality uh, index. And we're um, at the very top of it. So it's not even safe to go outside. Our in-shelter vets are recommending that animals go out for quick potty breaks. And that is it. Um, you know, we have indoor-outdoor access at our, our um, other location. And we've had to close that off and kind of seal the area so that smoke isn't pouring into the shelter, into the dog's kennels. It's uh, something else. Oh my God. How unreal. Oh, well, stay safe, obviously. Yikes. I mean, it's just, I just know how scary it is. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, we've, you know, it's just so hard and you always feel bad. And, you know, I've been reading about the people with the livestock getting, trying to get them out and horses being lost and, you know, fire is just such a terrifying thing. Cause you just see it marching and there's nothing you can do. There's just no getting out of the way. And it's not like a hurricane. You just can't, 
put tape on your windows and hope for the best. I mean, you got to get the hell out of Dodge. So, um, stay safe and, and, uh, you know, you have a home in Arizona if, if you need to run away from California. So <laughs> you're welcome here. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Leanne. <laughs> Uh, so actually today we actually had a plan um, because the world's ending no matter what we do. It's just like, that's just how it is. Um, so a couple weeks ago, Emily and I talked about uh, separation anxiety. And one of the things that we brought up was, was frustration and how many of the symptoms that we see in separation anxiety are in fact caused by frustration. And and you and I had been wanting to talk about this for months, but I can tell that you're a little busy. So, so we kept putting it off and, but now it's kind of even more relevant. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to take kind of a deep dive into frustration, kind of look at the definition of frustration, what it is and how it affects our dog training, either for the good or bad. Cause I think like everything else in dog training, I think there are quote unquote good levels of frustration and there are quote unquote, bad levels of frustration. And then there are things that we can do to help our dogs address their ability to function in, in a state of frustration. So before we start our conversation, we'll just define it so that everybody knows what we're talking about so that we at least have a clue what frustration means. So the definition of frustration is very simple. It's the emotion that you feel when there's something between you and something that you want. So I always tell people the best example of frustration is trying to get home and you're stuck in traffic. Uh, you have a clear goal and everybody in front of you is keeping you from getting there. The stoplights, the speed limit signs, the guy who's had his left blinker on for six miles and is going 10 miles below the speed limit. Those build up your frustration. If you're going to deal with what we call the uh, Panksepp's blue ribbon emotions, Frustration falls on what we call the rage system. And I always tell people, if you don't want to believe that, think of your emotional state towards the guy who's had his left turn signal on for the last five blocks and who made you wait through a red light that you didn't have to wait for and whose bumper stickers don't align politically with yours. <laughs> and you start to understand how frustration leads to, to rage. Or I always tell people the other way to tell is open, try to open one of those plastic clam wrappers that they put on things that you need like an axe or a saw to get into that's frustration and you can see how it amplifies to to anger and that's again we're gonna t that's the far end of frustration the near end of frustration is a crossword puzzle that you just can't quite remember the word and so there's that little bit of frustration that's between you and your goal which is getting the word right so you can see that in that case, frustration is, is a powerful motivator. It's the thing that makes you keep coming back and trying to figure out that word. So we're going to kind of explore all of it. And we're also going to talk about how we can try to build uh, the ability within our dogs to tolerate low levels of frustration and face frustration with confidence without losing their minds. Does all that sound reasonable to you, Maggie? Yeah. Thank you for defining that. It's a great definition of frustration. <laughs> and this, you know, this couldn't have come at a better time um, is I actually experienced some barrier frustration with my own dog yesterday. I received the, the worst bite I ever have. 
uh, from him. Not not ever in my my career, uh, but uh, uh, speaking of barrier frustration and redirected aggression, my dog, I was between my uh, something that my dog wanted, which was to bite our neighbor. And uh, we, uh, I left the door open. I was letting them in these apartment complexes and they're, they're side by side. And I, I left the door open. It was later. I wasn't paying attention. Uh, I went to let one dog out, the other rushed out. Uh, and then my neighbor was uh, opening his front door at that same time. And I reached for my dog's collar as he attempted to lunge and get that three times. Um, and I got some pretty severe punctures, actually. My arm is still a little uh, swollen from that. But here's an example of the extreme side of frustration and, and how it can be very dangerous. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, so let's talk about... So I think at the very bottom of frustration or very bottom... The, the part of frustration that we use in training would be free shaping where we set up a scenario and we have the thing the dog wants, which in this case is a, generally a food, a food reward. And the thing that stands between them and the food reward is getting the right answer. And in free shaping, which is a technique that puts the training kind of in the dog's side of, of things, instead of, me cueing the dog to do something, I cue the dog by a, by standing in a certain way or setting up a certain scenario, and the dog offers behavior. And then I mark and reward the behaviors that are approximating the behavior I, I want. And we will, sub, we will explain this in the show notes, and we'll also provide some video so there won't be any confusion, because free shaping can be confusing. But it's an incredibly powerful learning tool and the reason that it's part of the reason it's so powerful is not just that we're putting it in the dog's paws as it were to solve the problem but that research shows that if you are struggling with a solution to an answer you retain the information better and what better way to describe struggling to a for a solution than frustration so. And it's a very delicate balance. You have to be very careful um, because it's it's so easy to 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 shut a, a dog down quickly or to see frustration uh, behavior escalate into high arousal. You know, the perfect example, and I, I love to use this example, is I love to teach a dog to wipe their paws the the inappropriate way, which is hiding those treats under the mat uh, as the dog tries. And you know, we teach shake sometimes this way too. We'll put a, a treat in our hand and we'll offer it to the dog and the dog has to figure out how can I get that treat is it do I paw do I nose and then we're able to mark when the dog gets it right um, but you have to be very careful because if we push a little too much and the dog becomes too frustrated we're going to see behaviors that we don't want uh, but if we don't if we don't have that we may not um, get to see the dog's full potential they may not offer behaviors that we you know might otherwise want uh, to, to get, like in the example of the wiping the paws on the mat. That's a very difficult behavior to train without um, without that frustration aspect uh, to the, the training method. <laughs> what I was asking is, because I wasn't 100% certain how you teach the, the mat, the wiping the paws on the mat thing, because I don't teach that. So you take a mat, uh, like a welcome mat or what have you, and you throw some kibble or some food treats underneath and then you wait for the dog to do a digging behavior on that market and then reward it. Is, is that right? Yep. 
And I will prevent the dog from getting the treat from any other way but digging. Okay. So that really increases that frustration level uh, very rapidly. Right, right. And so how, because I think this is an important thing. So I think anybody who's watched any dog doing free shaping or any dog, you see it often in, in agility, but some of these dogs, and you know that their frustration level is incredibly high, the dog who spins in circles, biting its owner, the dog who spins in circles, barking, the dog who, while you're standing there with a treat in your hand, offers 745 behaviors in a row. That those That is not the pretty side of this training methodology. And that could be seen as a sign of a dog's inability to cope with the level of frustration being provided by this training modality. So the question that I have is because we don't want to see that. I mean, I would think that we would all agree that we don't want to see a dog that if I pick up my treat bag, throws out 427 behaviors while I'm walking into the middle of the living room to start. I want a dog who waits until I uh, put down the cone and then starts offering behaviors. And I don't want a dog who use fr who frustration barks or whines or does any of those things. I just want them to kind of go quietly to work without feeling like they're in an emotion in a heightened state of arousal. So how do we utilize this type of frustration training without creating a dog that exhibits these behaviors, which we have to assume are not a good mental state for the dog to be in? Well, you know what, Leanne, I think part of it too is um, a slow conditioning to develop coping mechanisms for stressors like frustration. So, you know, I mean, there are going to be stressors like this in life. You know, there'll be dogs that they want to meet on a leash that they are not going to be able to, to meet. They'll be prevented by you in that leash. Um, there'll be treats that to be had that they're not able to get uh, while you're working on an exercise and you're not able to treat. So, you know, it's, it's finding that, that, I guess, balance between between errorless learning and um, you know adding additional stressors in your training, where we're we're improving the dog's ability to cope with mild stressors without pushing them up over the edge. And you know I think a lot of times we uh, as trainers have a tendency to um, not allow our our um, you know our students our our human students uh, to to challenge the dogs in these ways because we see the mistakes that they make and we also see the end result of what um, you know serious frustration behavior looks like and its effect on the mental state of the dog and the training you know I mean it's, it's not effective straight training strategy if your dog is always frustrated and doesn't understand what you want um, so I think it's taking these baby steps uh, you know whether it's uh, providing an outlet or additional reward so for example the dog uh, wants to meet the other dog on the leash and they don't and that results in a u-turn with some sprinting down the block and uh, ends with a game of tug or you know whatever we can do to um to provide other types of coping mechanisms for this type of behavior so i think i think that's so i guess the question would be so so I, i'm reading when pigs fly which by somebody that's embarrassing the people who came up with puppy culture and the idea behind the book is that it's designed for because i always joke that dog trainers who use positive based methods or food reward based methods or whatever you want to call it 
those types of trainers gravitate toward these incredibly easy breeds of dogs. You don't because you're just, I don't know what's wrong with you, but most of them do. Most of them do. Most, if you ask most, or if you look at most people who do reward-based training, they're owning things like border collies and Australian shepherds and healers and the German shepherds and Malinois. They're owning these breeds that, that if, yes, if I stand there with a treat for more than two seconds, the dog's going to be like, let me do a handstand for you. And the idea behind the book, When Pigs Fly, is she owns bull terriers and bull terriers are not border collies now i have to say that the one i've the the one or two i've worked with have been incredibly high drive and very very happy to work for people but i'm i'm guessing as a rule that they aren't always or to give an example anybody who owns a hound has dealt with this is if you stand there with a treat with a hound they're going to stand there and stare at you <laughs> for about a half a second and then wander off and follow their nose so her argument is, is that the way that we should be training these types of dogs, instead of using luring, is that you should use tree shaping for everything. And so my, my fear, of course, I remember the first time I saw free shaping, of course, I didn't recognize what it was. I mean, I, I'd heard about it, but, you know, it was told to me like, well, you just stand there until the dog offers the behavior and then you pay it. And I'm like, well, that's the most idiotic training method I've ever heard of in my entire life. Because I didn't know that you you don't wait for the dog to do a handstand you you start you start by building you know very basic behaviors and, and moving up from there. But when we when we start, so how do we? I guess the question is is how how do we start teaching? I mean, you kind of gave the example of the dog on the leash, but is there something that we can do in our training right from the beginning? to help inoculate our dogs from facing or dealing inappropriately with frustration if if that's how we're training. If we're training using free shaping, which I advocate everybody do, if for no other reason than it's an incredibly powerful tool to teach you, the human, better timing. And I think it puts a lot of power in the paws of the dog and it's very empowering. And since I work with a lot of anxiety case dogs, I like to give them as much power as I can. And I found that free shaping is very powerful. So how do we inoculate those dogs from feeling an inappropriate amount of frustration? And how do we recognize the difference? I guess this is a good question between an appropriate amount of frustration where they're working through the product, the, the, the problem and an inappropriate amount of frustration where the problem has become too hard and they, they cannot work through it or they, they don't have the tools to work through it. Yeah, you know, I think the first thing to do is examine the the dog's learning history. Um, and, you know, especially in shelter work, these dogs don't have a learning history. And so we want to keep the frustration level as low as possible. But we can also kind of start establishing this. And, you know, as an owner of sighthounds, um, I know very well that, uh, you know, if uh, the dog is frustrated, the dog doesn't want to work, they, they walk away. They don't anymore uh, because we've worked very hard on kind of developing um, those strategies. So, you know, it could be as simple as doing, uh, you know, 101 things to do with a box. You know, it, it might be, uh, you know, one thing that I really like to teach is look at that. So look at that we use mostly for reactivity. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, it's interesting because they're one, they're following a point. 
which is um, a, a really bizarre behavior for, for a dog, if you think about it. They're, they're looking at a human hand, and that human hand is, is pointing to something, and the dog has to figure out that they have to look in the direction of the point. And it's actually quite advanced, if you think about it. Uh, it's, it's a difficult exercise. It's a difficult concept to, to train. And in teaching exercises like that, we might see a mild amount of frustration behavior as they're first learning. Um, so, you know, we'd like to take baby steps and ways to kind of help them along so that they're still actively learning, um, but their, their frustration isn't getting the best of them. So, for example, if we're working on an exercise like look at that, where they're supposed to follow the finger to look at something like, um, you know, a person or another dog, uh, but when the learning stages, we might be having them look at a, a chair or look at a toy in your hand or look at somebody else holding something. Um, you know, we can make that a little bit easier to start. So we might start by, um, you know, and, and if you think about it, think about how we, um, you know, fade a lure. In a sense, we're adding a little bit of frustration as we go. Right. So, you know, we might start by having the treat in our hand and luring the dog's face right up to the toy and clicking and treating it. Or if we're working on something like sit or down, um, you know, we might start by, um, you know, treating, uh, you know, shaping that behavior by treating just the head down and then, you know, part of the legs down. Um, and so they're building on those behaviors, but we are rewarding them quickly enough that um, they're, we're, we're not spending too much time uh, when they are making mistakes and when they are, we're moving back steps that uh, the dog isn't getting too frustrated, but they're still wanting to work. I think part of that is keeping our training sessions short and concise. No what we want to train, how we want to train it, and where we plan on, um, you know, how we plan on shaping that behavior. But I think it's just those daily interactions in our training that can help uh, to develop these long-term frustration coping strategies later on. I, I agree. And I think, I, I think that, I think what, I think where people are going to err if they try free shaping, which I urge everybody to do, I urge everybody. So again, we will also provide links to 101 things to do with box. I always recommend it um, for my advanced students and for any of my uh, students that I'm teaching uh, uh, free shaping to. And is is to make sure that you start off by by rewarding a lot of stuff. So the way I think you want to look at it is if, if you had a child, and, and I think I, I go to children not because I think dogs and children are the same, but I think it's because we should look at how we train a child in the same way as we look at how we train a dog, not because they're the same animal, because it's incremental. So if, if you have a child and you want your child to read Shakespeare, you don't wait to, you don't sit there and say, okay, I have a five-year-old child and I'm going to give them Macbeth and I'm going to reward them when they start doing a, a soliloquy. Well, they're, <laughs> they're never going to do <laughs> Okay. You can wait all day long. They're not going to, they're never going to do any part of Macbeth. What you start off with is the child making sounds and you start off with the alphabet and you start off with the first time they make something resembling an A and or the first time they sound out cat and you do everything incrementally. And yes, eventually your child will hopefully stand in front of you and, and read Macbeth to you. But you've got to start at the ABCs. And I think with dogs, we tend to rush to Macbeth. And when they can't do it, 
we're like, well, they're dumb, <laughs> which is not fair. So when you're trying these training, any, my rule of thumb is two failures in a row needs, means I need to reassess. If I get two fails in a row, I need to reassess. Now with free shaping, failure would be the dog stops trying. And actually at one is, is pretty high. Free shaping, they're going to give you lots of wrong answers. But so I'll do take more than two wrong answers, but quitting is, is not a wrong answer. That's, that's a failure on my part. So if my dog quits, I've screwed up. Now I've had dogs walk away while I was free shaping and then come back. And I, I can live with that, but that tells me that I'm right on the verge of creating a, a frustration situation where they're, they're in over their head. Uh, they're doing the New York times puzzle and maybe they should be doing a fifth grade puzzle. And so I need to back it down and maybe not ask for that 14 syllable word that means something obscure that no one's ever heard of. So we, we do have to start off at a level the dog can comprehend. Now, having said that, there is, there is a fear that if, so Maggie earlier mentioned error-free learning. <laughs> you want to see everybody's hackles go up. Just mention error-free learning. So... <laughs> So the thing about error-free learning is very powerful, I think, at the beginning. And I try to do as much error-free learning as possible at the very beginning. There's no point in teaching your child and letting your, your little baby mess up. They, they learn nothing. They have no tools. But once they've, once they've gotten past that, that's when we can start introducing the free shaping. So now that we've introduced, like, say, free shaping and we've gotten some level of frustration, how do we keep building it up because we, we all know people right we know human beings who the littlest thing <laughs> causes them to lose their shit and other people the same issue is never never even no they're not noticing it so part of it really could just be hardwired part of it could be uh, early learning so we need to inoculate our dogs against frustration. And so what I'd like to ask Maggie about is let's say you're dealing with a dog. So I'll give you an example. So Ruby, my Aussie used Aussie. I didn't raise her. I think it's always important to point out that. Okay. We're back. Apparently frustration is the name of the game. We just lost internet and hopefully we have it back. Sorry about that. We'll have to go fix that up post-production, but I'm sure it'll still sound terrible since my skills are subpar. So what I was about to ask Maggie was we kind of talked about how to start our dogs off on the right paw, as it were, to slowly, slowly provide a situation where they can learn to deal with frustration in the training setting. Uh, we talked about how we can kind of slowly, incrementally raise the bar, as it were, so what we'd like to do now is kind of go back to, because not everybody gets a clean slate. Not everybody creates a, a perfect scenario. And sometimes you end up with a dog who's already dealing with frustration. And so I think, oh, that's a can of worms. So I think we need to open the can of worms. I'm never sure what that means. Why would I open a can of worms? I think if I found a can of worms, I'd close the can of worms and throw the can of worms away. Why would I open it? So... <laughs> But nevertheless, let's open our can of worms. And I guess the first question is, is Maggie, when we talk about frustration, when we're talking about frustration that our dog's not handling well, what are the signs that we're going to start looking for that tells us that the situation is becoming 
upsetting for the dog and the dog is starting to feel frustration. I mean, what does that, what do we say? What are we looking at when we say So that? I think, I think the first thing is, um, and I use the same, I use two fails uh, when I'm teaching a new behavior. If the dog fails uh, twice, I will go back, uh, usually two steps. Um, I won't go back to the previous, I'll go back even one more um, so that I can kind of give the dog a, a little bit of a breather um, because, you know, frustration is going to increase cortisol levels. It's going to increase uh, adrenaline levels. You know, they're, they're really fixated on solving this issue and they're not able to, and that leads to frustration behavior. So um, I think the first thing we want to look at is, is the dog failing? Um, are they, uh, or are they disengaging? So are they walking away? You know, it's sometimes we say, you know, I hear owners say all the time, my dog is so distractible during my training sessions, right? The dog is sniffing or they're taking these breaks to go drink water. Well, is it really distraction or do we have a dog who is extremely frustrated and is this actually, um, avoidance behavior. So, because frustration, especially when we're working with a dog is, um, you know, sometimes it can be, um, you know, a, a, oh, it, it can be, uh, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it, you, um, it, it can be a, a bit challenging or threatening. <laughs> To the dog, you know, they're, they're not able to identify what you want. You're still asking for something. They're not able to deliver. They're not able to get paid. Um, and so the dog is actually disengaging to avoid conflict, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. And those are the situations we don't want uh, because that's going to hurt your bond. It's going to hurt your training session and it's going to hurt future sessions. Um, so the, the first thing we want to look at, you know, and, and, and is any of those types of behaviors. So, um, yeah, yeah, that would be the very first step, the things to look for. I think the more, uh, more dangerous type behaviors would be, um, you know, say for example, um, barrier frustration or, you know, a dog who's on leash and they, they want to greet another dog and, you know, it might start with barking, uh, lunging. And then, you know, it's a dog who's pulling and you, you know, if you reach for the dog, they might, um, you know, redirect on the handler. That would be much more serious. Um, so, so, so things like that, um, you know, Oh no, it went away again. Oh no, you hit your, um, you hit your, oh, I mute. Did? what did Maggie? I do? <laughs> You hit mute. I'm like, where did she go? <laughs> oh God. We are not qualified to do this. <laughs> okay, since Maggie's still on mute, and I don't know what the hell she's doing. So, God. So, so anyway, so I think when we're thinking about frustration. We. We just have to listen to this podcast and we'll understand completely what we're talking about. But, but we're barring that. Again, we always have to understand that frustration runs in the continuum and frustration, some frustration is good and some frustration is harmful. And where that line falls is different for every dog is different for every training scenario. And I think can be hard, hard to see. So we, 
I know we often in this podcast go back to herding, which probably doesn't help 99.99% of the people out there, but bear with me. Herding is unique because the dog is on its own. Um, they have to solve the problem of how to move the sheep on their own. I can't really do much to help them. I mean, I can, I can step in it from time to time, but if they're far enough away, there's not a lot I can do and I can't explain them. So as an example, uh, Tag was struggling the other day trying to get the sheep out of the corner. Uh, she's had some real problems with getting sheep out of this particular corner. And the problem is that sheep are not stupid. And sheep learn quickly that the dog can't figure out how to get them out of that corner. And so they clump even worse into the corner. And so Tag gets frustrated. And the way she deals with her frustration is she starts off first and I can't get her to go to, I can't get her flank all the way around to the sheep. And then finally, when I put enough pressure on her, because she'll take the pressure, because I'm like, I need the sheep out of the corner. We can't do anything fun until the sheep are not wedged in the corner. When I put the pressure on her to get her unwedged from the corner, she, she starts to go around the sheep. You see her eyes shift and she dives in and grabs the sheep. And it's frustration. She's pissed. She, you know exactly, she's been trying to open that damn box with made of that plastic with just a pair of, of toenail clippers for half an hour and she's pissed off. And so she reaches out and grabs a sheep. And, and I see that and I know exactly the state she's in. And so I have to find a way I can't sit her down and explain to her. I can't say tag. You can simply go around the sheep. If you stop charging at the sheep, they won't do that. And of course the issue that she's creating through this, again, sheep aren't stupid is they've learned, they're learning that they start to run. She's going to grab them. So now they're like, we are not leaving this corner. <laughs> no good comes of leading this corner. So we're just not doing it. And, and I have to very carefully walk that line between permitting her to make that mistake and learn those lessons and stepping back to explain it to herself someplace else. So what we do is in her case, I, again, we, I know this dog, this is a very courageous dog. This is just one little problem we have. So we move the sheep. Once we get them out of the bloody corner, we move them to a completely different corner and we practice getting them out of that corner for whatever reason, it's just the one corner. We practice that. So Tag sees the picture and she sees the picture and she sees the picture and we move to a different corner and she sees that picture. Then we might move completely across the arena and try a different picture. And then we slowly creep up on that corner. And I watch her for signs of frustration and we practice in that corner, but she's still going to come back the next, like literally the next day and still have issues with that corner. And so we do have to walk that fine line between allowing her to learn on her own that this corner is no different. Corners aren't magically different. They're all the same and, and not, and allowing that frustration to build until it becomes problematic. And so that's what I've, I'm trying to explain is by the time she is lunging in and grabbing a sheep, I've probably played the game too long. The problem for her, of course, is I can't get them out, out, the, out of the corner without her. <laughs> it's just, I can't. Um, and grabbing her by the collar and her and bringing her in is not something I want to do. So it's hard for the person too, especially if you're trying to solve a problem that's complicated. You know, if the frustration the dog is dealing with is strangers in your house and you have kids, that that's hard. So I think we have to, we have to constantly be weighing our dog's ability to learn in that situation and their frustration level 
and and all of that and and like when maggie was saying she has a dog who just like tag when he gets frustrated he reaches out and bites it's just he doesn't have sheep <laughs> he has his brother or maggie to bite and frustration is what causes dog bites i mean that's that's the situation. I mean, that's the fact. So yeah, yeah. Back, and, you know, I think something that we haven't really discussed, you know, I, I really like you, you know, mentioning the, the picture and it is about painting this bigger picture so that they can understand all aspects of the behavior that we're trying to teach. And something that we haven't really addressed um, is frustration's role in, uh, you know, we've talked about frustration's role in teaching new behaviors. Uh, and and to to build that resilience and training, uh, but we haven't talked about extinction um, uh, extinguishing behaviors through frustration. So an example might be uh, our dog is jumping on us, and we are turning our back. Well. Um, the dog isn't getting reinforced, but what we might start to see is what we consider an extinction burst. So that behavior becomes more and more frantic. So before that used to work for us, right? We would jump and then the owner would acknowledge either they would say, hey, you get off and they you know, push them off. Okay, well, it's still attention. Um, or maybe they, um, you know, maybe they reinforced it. Maybe they pet the dog every time they, they came home until the dog was a hundred pounds and they decided they didn't like that behavior anymore. Um, and so they turned their back well that used to work um but now it's not and so the dog might jump more maybe they'll grab clothing uh maybe they'll nip you know maybe they'll bark or growl and so we see this behavior escalating and it actually is frustration behavior until the the behavior is extinguished and you know is that really appropriate do we really want the dog to escalate that way okay we're working on jumping but now the all the neighbors are upset with us and um you know filing reports with the apartment complex because our dog is barking at us every time we walk in <laughs> because we're turning our back and ignoring our dogs so some of the ways that we might prevent that while well, the dog is still thinking and they still are a little frustrated because before they were being reinforced for that jumping behavior is perhaps we uh, start to to mark the the things that are right so instead of just turning our back maybe we've we're armed with the clicker and they're our dog's favorite treat and when the dog stops jumping we reward or they they move on to something else it's just we're we're creating that bigger picture you know I like to do this when I'm teaching um, dogs just loose leash walking you know, I, I like to click them in different positions uh, that I still find acceptable and in different behaviors that I still find okay on a walk while working on loose leash walking. So that might be, you know, yes, it's great if you're uh, beside me or slightly behind me. It's okay if you're sniffing. Um, and so I'm creating this bigger picture to help prevent some of those frustration behaviors. This is the dog still working through? Um, but I think the more that we're able to, to help the dog see uh, what this end result, because we have an idea of what this behavior looks like at the end. But the dog doesn't, at least not yet. Um, and I think why by defining that, um, we can, and, and by controlling those frustration levels and being able to identify those frustration levels before they get out of hand and before the dog gets, you know, so frustrated that they shut down or we see an extinction burst that is more than we can handle, you know, and those can be dangerous because biting is a go-to, you know, and they, they can control their world very well uh, through biting. And so that's, you know, it's, it, it's yes. important that we're taking those measures to help the dog uh, define the, the end goal. Yeah. I, and, and I think, that's actually a really good point because I 
I think we're at a point where most trainers um, now feel that using extinction as a method to remove a behavior is, in the absence of an alternate incompatible behavior is not ethical for as many behaviors as we can possibly do. So as an example, for those of you who are like, what the hell did she just say? In, extinction means a behavior that was previously rewarded is no longer rewarded. And the, the, the example I always, always give is if I go up to a soda machine and I press the soda machine button for Dr. Pepper, I'm rewarded with Dr. Pepper. If I go to the soda machine one day and I'm not rewarded with Dr. Pepper, I do not walk away from the machine. I press the button again and I press it again and my frustration starts to build and I start pressing any brown soda with sugar and then I press any soda with sugar and then I get so desperate I just press any button. Just maybe I can trade for something that isn't shitty and then I press the eject money button and when that doesn't work, that's when I start looking for a backhoe or... <laughs> buying a Sharpie and writing nasty letters to the owner of the machine. But here's the deal about that. All of that behavior, the button pushing, that's not what I'm about. If you, if somebody came walking, every time I approached a soda machine, somebody came out from behind the soda machine and handed me a Dr. Pepper, I would never push the button again. The behavior of pushing the button is not the purpose of what I'm there for. I'm there for a Dr. Pepper. And so for most dogs, as an example, jumping up is not the purpose. They are pushing the button and the button is shaped like jumping up. But what they're looking for is attention from the owner. And so if the owner sees the dog approaching and bends down and pets the dog first, then the dog won't have to keep trying jumping up. Because as Maggie explained, an extinction burst, which we just example, which is the example I just gave with a Dr. Pepper. Now, a Dr. Pepper is a very tiny thing, really, in the scheme of things. I have Circle K's. <laughs> I have 7-Elevens. I have other sources of Dr. Pepper. But imagine if, if Dr. Pepper was incredibly valuable and if the only way I was getting Dr. Pepper was through jumping up. Think of what the extinction burst would be then. If you take a dog who's most of the time is ignored, and the attention that they finally get is only after jumping on the human being and being screamed at to jump, get the hell down. And you suddenly say, okay, well, we're just going to ignore that behavior. The button pushing gets much, much worse. And if it's a big, powerful dog, you're going to at some point cave in and scream at the dog or turn to the dog or give the dog some reward. Because again, any, you know, what's that saying? All press is good press. <laughs> All attention is good attention. So instead of, instead of waiting until you've the, put, the button's been pushed, I always recommend get to the dog before they even come, even before they stick their finger towards the button. Just lean down and say hi to your dog. Uh, I train Billy the kid. She does a, a middle. That's her behavior. That means she gets petted. Dice does what I call the squirrel where he, he sits up on his haunches instead of jumping on me because they came with those behaviors and I don't like those behaviors. I don't like dogs jumping on me. Cody, uh, Cody, Cody, Cody does what Cody wants because Cody's cute. Um, but, and tag was never allowed to jump on me because I decided I don't like dogs who jump on me. And I thought I should get proactive instead of reactive. So we, so when we're dealing with a situation, when we're dealing with frustration, and this is important to understand 
the amount of value the dog places on the object that they want is going to dictate, and the scarcity of the the item, is going to dictate the amount of frustration. So if the thing that they're looking for is a single kibble, (laughs) that amount of frustration, depending, we're going to exclude Labradors, but excluding Labradors, the amount of frustration to earn one kibble is pretty low versus the amount of frustration to, say, get to you if you leave for eight hours a day and the only thing that they think is between you and them is the door that you walked out of to leave. That's why you'll see that level of frustration at say your door or your crate is, is because of the value of the thing, the object. That's where your, your frustration level is going to get to the point where the dog really can't, can't function. And so what we're talking about, what both Maggie and I are kind of going on about is start with little frustrations that your dog can, can learn to tolerate and build up slowly from there. And you can do it through training, through shaping, which we talked about earlier, which is a great way to inoculate your dog against, uh, against frustration. You can do it by building clear, what I refer to as clear windows of opportunity. Um, I stole the phrase from JJack, um, but I've always thought of it, but I just didn't have a name for it. But what it is, is it's the understand it's context. It's teaching your dog that this will never happen now. And, but this will happen all the time. So I always give the example, a perfect example of frustration is the dog who stares at you when you're eating. Oh my God, that sucks. So when the dog stares at you endlessly when you're eating, that's, that's kind of frustrating. Well, it's frustrating for you. It's frustrating for the dog, but if the dog's never been fed there. There's no reason for them to be frustrated because there's nothing standing between them, and the object of the desire, because I've never received the object of the desire. If my object of desire is my, is my neighbor's Corvette, but I've never been allowed to have it. I can desire it all I want, but I'm not going to be frustrated by it. So that's kind of what we talk, what we're talking about with inoculating small amounts of frustration. So Maggie, what do we do when we are faced with a dog who is already displaying frustration, say with aggression or the, the high pitched psycho Aussie bark that we're also familiar with, or you you had healers. So the high pitched healer psycho bark. Well, I think first thing we need to do is identify what, what the trigger is for the frustration behavior. So, you know, why are they frustrated? Are they leashed? Are we at an agility trial and the dog is crated and everyone else is having a wonderful time and it's not their turn yet? So we need to determine what that, um, you know, why the animal is frustrated. And then we need to offer some alternative behavior and ideally some... <sighs> some outlet for that. So one thing I'm going to say is, is part of it is, is I, again, I think it's part of it is to create really clear contextual understanding. Yeah. We have to make things incredible, especially the higher the drive of the dog. I mean, so again, this part of this is going to come down to the drive of your dog because if nothing, so, <laughs> so arousal level is going to feed into frustration. If nothing is that important to your dog, they're never going to get frustrated. <laughs> if they're the effectively, if they're the, the stoners of the dog world, you're not going to see a lot of frustration out of them because they don't care. There's just not a lot that they care about. And so that's good. That's pretty easy to live with. But if you're dealing with a higher drive dog, um, you're going to have to, it's going to be tougher so as an example, I, when I take all my dogs down to herd, 
I take all three border collies down to herd. I lock up the others because I don't want them running the fence line. So everybody else gets locked up at the house and the three border collies go down to the sheep pen to herd. And I tie two of the border collies up and then work the third dog. So obviously for the two border collies who aren't working, but they're watching somebody else herd, that is incredibly frustrating. So part of the picture I've set up for them is when you are sitting here, you will never be rewarded for barking and screaming. Never. I will never approach you. I will never come near you. You can bark and scream and carry on all you want, but that will never, ever be rewarded. The second thing is, is that you will get to go, but I control that. And so I will come back up. I will let you loose and I will bring you to the sheep. So there's, there's never an expectation that they can chew their way through the leash. I mean, I'm not even using leashes. I can use leashes they could chew through in two seconds. I mean, one's a nice little leather leash that a friend of mine made for me. One's a cheap little nylon leash. They could, these dogs could be through those leashes in a half, in a half second. And the other day I tied them to the st bailing string so that my sheep wouldn't go into the hay. So, cause I knew that it'd be easier than getting them off the hay is just have dogs parked on the hay. So the dogs know that this, this is the picture. The picture is we go down to the sheep. She, we tie up, we're tied up, we get our turn and that's the picture and it never changes. And it's, it's very simple for them. It's not complicated. It, no one ever gets to chew through the leash and then get sheep. If they somehow I've snapped, accidentally snapped the collar on the wrong, the, the leash in the wrong spot and they get loose, they don't get to chase sheep. If I see them loose, I, I bring them back, tie them back up and they're attached again. So they've never been rewarded for doing anything other than just hanging out and watching the other dogs herd. So I've created these really clear pictures for them so they understand this is happens, then this happens, then this happens. It never varies. Have you come up with your brilliant idea yet there, Maggie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, I... So, so one thing that I like to do, and, and it's important when you when you hear Leanne say this, that this was a process. She didn't just tie the dog to the bale of hay and just let him cry it out. Um, you know, it was a uh, you know maybe a, she she alternated with uh, five minutes and then we you know send another dog in. I do a similar kind of protocol with my dog. So when I'm working two dogs at once, it's too much. You know, unless I'm working on a specific exercise where I require both dogs working, I like, you know, the one dog who's sitting out um, to be sitting out, but they're still working. We're still engaging. So, you know, for the example of the, the agility dog who's barking, or in my case where I'm working two dogs at once, um, the dog is going to get rewarded throughout for the appropriate behavior. So like in the example of, uh, you know, if they're barking, screaming, lunging to get to the sheep, maybe once they stop, we're calm, we're adding that reward system by allowing them to go for the sheep. And in my case, when I'm working a dog, um, do I have one where I'm working and one say is occupied in another behavior like sit, stay, or they're at, you know, in place, I will, you know, reward that dog occasionally. Um, so maybe it's a treat toss or a verbal praise, good job, you know, let them know that they're on the right track, that they're doing the appropriate behavior. Um, 
and then release the dog. So, um, you know, it's important. And I like to do things, you know, there are little exercises, you know, it's, it's hard for me to think of one this, you know, right. We'll talk a little bit more, I'm sure about, uh, more serious frustration behavior, but, um, you know, it's, it's building the, these ex slowly building these exercises. So like one thing I like to do is, um, you know, starting when you have a puppy is treating from multiple areas. Perhaps we're working on, you know, sits and downs and I've got a treat pouch and I've got um, a treat bag on the ground, you know, and I'm, I'm picking up a treat from the, the, the ground or, you know, the, the treat pouch isn't on me. It's, you know, I have to walk over to the, I don't counter to grab the treat and back. So they're practicing having to wait for that reward. Um, you know, it's not a long wait, but it's probably yeah, a long yeah. wait when you're, I don't know, a 10 week old puppy. Um, and so we're, you know, we're, we're, we're building that process and it's something that's slow. You can't rush into it. You know, you really just can't, um, or you're going to cause issues. If we're looking at barrier frustration and we have a dog who's in the crate and the first night we say, all right, we'll just put them in the crate. We'll just wait. We'll let them cry it out. And after, after five hours, they, they stop crying. You know, is, is that really teaching frustration tolerance or is that just learned helplessness? So I think, um, you know, it's about, being mindful and building so that we don't ever get to that point ever. It's about management strategies as well. So, you know, if, if we have a dog who is going ballistic while the other dogs are trialing, well, then we're probably not ready to have the dog created while other dogs are at the trial. Um, we're not there yet and we shouldn't expect the dog to be there. So it would be building up. Maybe it would be gosh, 10 seconds of that. And then we run the course and we practice and we practice and we practice in different places and different trials and different parks. And, um, you know, it's, it's building to that point because, um, if we do allow the frustration behavior to escalate, it's cruel, it's unfair. And the dog doesn't have an understanding of the bigger picture. Otherwise they wouldn't be frustrated in the first place. So, you know, I think that's important to be mindful of that. I agree. And, and actually you brought up an interesting, an interesting thing. So when I, when I trained horses, there was a, there was a philosophy. I think it still exists. It was always a cowboy philosophy. So it wasn't in the groups of horses I was working with, but so I'd see these horses, these young horses tied up various hitching rails, digging holes to China. I mean, these, these horses had been sitting there for hours digging holes and I was like, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're teaching patience. And I'm like, I don't think you're teaching jack shit. I think, <laughs> I think the, the horse is digging a hole. It's not learning patience. Locking you in your bedroom does not teach you patience. It teaches you boredom, but not patience. And if we want to believe that patience is the flip side of the coin to, to frustration, then, and then you build it through the understanding that that you will eventually get what you're looking for. And I think, you know, we've talked about this until we're blue in the face on this podcast, you know, make sure your dog's needs needs are met. Uh, I mean, part of the reason I, you know, my dogs don't flip out when we go down the sheep is because the sheep, they're available. They, they don't have to, they, it's a very, very high valuable, very, very high value thing, but there's always going to be more of them. Whereas, you know, if your dog only gets to play ball every three weeks, it's going to be a much bigger deal to, to deal with that, to, to 
live with that level of frustration for your dog because it's it's much more valuable so because it's interesting we build value the way we train when we're using reward-based systems is we have to build value for a reward system because without value we're back to that stoner dog who could care less about the thing that we're trying to get them to work for and we have to have some frustration or the dog just walks away because they're like, don't care. <laughs> I'll see that kibble later. I'm not going to die. So you have to build some need in the dog to earn the thing. But at the same time, the more value we build in, the more we build that frustration. And then there has been some arguments, and I can't remember who put them forward, kind of thoughtful arguments, I thought, about if we build so much desire for, say, the ball, are we really giving the dog the choice anymore to earn the ball? Or have we just turned it into something that they are pretty much fanatical about? And I think that's a fair question to ask when you're dealing with these higher drive dogs. Uh, you know. But having said that, I want as much desire as I can get because I know that they will work through that frustration because... As we talked about earlier, Tag wants to move the sheep, but the frustration is she can't get them out of the corner. I need her thinking so that she can figure out how to get them out of the corner. And the more I give her the tools to help her think through the problem, the stronger she'll be so that when she's faced with a similar thing, say the sheep are out and they're wedged up against a mesquite tree or something, she'll say, oh, I know how to solve this problem. I, I know how to do it. And she won't get frustrated and try to eat my sheep. So we do have, and we have to also understand that most dogs feel some level of barrier frustration, just in the fact that we walk so slow and our leashes are so short that, that they're like, damn it. It's like being stuck in the slow lane all the time. So we, we do need to build it, but we have to build it incrementally. And I think part of understanding how to build it incrementally is understanding that we do have to inject small pieces of frustration into the training. So the dog understands what it looks like, what it feels like, and how to get through the other side. And I think that is an important component that has to be a part of the training that we introduce after we've started with kind of the error-free stuff. So start with the error-free learning, but then we have to go to your, this is a little bit difficult. You're going to have to suss it out. And we don't, we don't set them up for failure, but we do set them up to say, here's a high value item. Here's what's standing between you and that high value item. You need to work through this so they can start feeling small bits of frustration and learning to be in a thoughtful place there as opposed to losing their shit. As you've seen anybody try, I always joke, you know, a great way to tell how a marriage is going is watch two people set up a, a tent. <laughs> they want to talk about frustration. So, 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 <laughs> but we know we can set up a tent. People have done it before, but if it's late at night, maybe there's too many beers involved and it's raining. That's not the time to set up the tent, but that tells you how, what kind of emotional state frustration is, is, are you still thinking? Can you solve the problem of setting up the tent in the rainstorm? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I think it, and that brings up a, an important point is looking at what the reward is. You know, if you can set up that tent and you're in a rainstorm, well, it's going to provide shelter. It's going to keep you dry. That's highly motivated, motivating for, for you. Now, if we're a dog who wants to play with another dog, 
and they're frustrated. And we um, offer something like we move away and we treat the dog. Um, you know, is, is that really helping with that frustration behavior? You know, in a lot of ways, they might be more frustrated. They don't want to treat. You have no treat that um, is comparable to meeting the other dog. And so I think it's getting creative with solutions that reward a dog for, um, for, for not exhibiting behaviors that we don't want while they are frustrated. So... And being able, and, yeah, you know, rewarding for, you know, coping, you know, maybe the dog, you know, this, they don't get to meet, but they do all the things they're trained to do. And then we reward them with that measly treat. Is that really the best solution? Can we think of something better to make this a more effective long-term strategy overall? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think, and I think to be fair, so to kind of wind it up, since God only knows how long this is in the real world, once I've edited all the screw ups out is we we have to we have to understand that frustration exists in our dogs lives whether we want whether we want to pretend that they do not or, or not it doesn't matter what we want to pretend the fact of the matter is is every time that you go two miles an hour with a six foot leash attached to your dog your dog is frustrated because you suck and you're going way too slow and your dog is going to be dealing with frustration and anytime you hold back food because that's what you're using for reward systems they're going to experience some level of frustration unless they walk off, in which case they don't care about the thing. So we first, we always need to pay attention to frustration levels. We want to help inoculate our dogs to deal with some level of frustration. We want to give our dogs the appropriate tools to deal with frustration when they do feel it, because they're going to feel it. So uh, what we had brought up earlier, I think was a little bit was I have an Australian shepherd. She's used, I didn't get her new. So uh, I always tell people that because I don't raise psychotic dogs. I just get them used. So she came to me and she was a little bit nut jobby. She has a lot of frustration. She takes, she uses her teeth and she's found that's an incredibly powerful tool, uh, teeth. And her, that's her go-to for any even slightly perceived level of, of space invasion on, on anybody's part was immediate escalation to teeth. And that most of it stemmed from frustration. A lot of her behavior stems from frustration. And so one of the things that we had to do is not only am I telling her, showing her through multiple modalities of training, how to learn to cope with frustration, making sure that her needs are met, uh, you know, creating incredibly clear windows so she knows that, yes, I'm not throwing a toy for you 24 hours a day. All of that. The other thing that we definitely had to teach her was that teeth is never a permitted method of expressing your frustration. And I think there can be room, depending on the behavior, for us to use some pressure, um, if, if we're comfortable with that modality of training, to tell the dog that that's not acceptable. Um, I'm lucky in that Border Collies are a fairly small, uh, quiet dog, at least the ones bred for herding. So I never had to listen to Tag or any of my other dogs carry on. But the board, the Aussie came with a high-pitched psycho scream. And if you tied her up down by the sheep when we tried, we tried twice to see how she was on sheep. It wasn't pretty, so we gave up. But even when we played Frisbee, if she wasn't playing Frisbee, she'd be screaming the whole time. And she did have to have a leash made of chain because she'd snap through it in a nanosecond. And sadly, it took me three leashes to learn this. That's... <laughs> That's a, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother, oh, sad state of, 
<laughs> state of affairs. But anyway, because uh, she can't, she just can't, cannot contain her frustration. Her her emotional state is always to the nth degree, and we've been working on it. But one of the things that we definitely had to teach her was that teeth are not acceptable. They are just never ever acceptable. And so, yes, we did all the things that, that help her learn. But at the same time, we did use some pressure on her to say uh, lunging and snapping and snarling is not, is not kosher and screaming is not kosher. And uh, so in her case, we did teach a shut the hell up cue, which was me screaming, shut the hell up. <laughs> And leaning towards her in a threatening manner. So not entirely what it caused fluffy, positive reinforcement training. But part of it was the only thing that I had available to reward her with was the disc, the Frisbee. And I, I, there's no, there's no middle ground between the Frisbee. There's either a Frisbee or no Frisbee. And I wasn't going to pay. I wasn't going to pay barking and screaming for, with a, with a Frisbee. So um, and she's learned, she's gotten much better, but it, there is a way, there is a place once you, if you have a dog who already comes with that behavior, but you have to be very, very, very careful. Cause we talked about this in past things about using pressure to make sure that you don't create a dog who uses teeth. Now she already had teeth, so I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't make it worse. So, you know, and I think, but go I ahead, think, no, <laughs> go ahead. No, no, you I go ahead. No, you go say, ahead. Just piggybacking on that. It is no matter what your methodology, it's important to know that, um, you know, it's where your dog's threshold levels of workable zones are, because if you were applying pressure to a dog that um, is at a, such a high state of arousal um, and that could be due to frustration. So we're maybe we're dealing with leash reactivity or something like that. Um, where, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You, you could yell, you could scream, you could throw things, you could do whatever. It, it doesn't matter. The dog is checked out. They are so highly aroused. Active learning cannot take place. And, you know, some of the my favorite ways to actually test this is the treat test. Will a dog eat? If they're so highly aroused, you offer them a treat that they will typically take in every scenario, or it could be a disc, you know, whatever that dog's reinforcement is, their, their, um, their highest value reinforcement, if they won't take that in that situation, you know, it's, you, you've got to add some distance, you know, you've got to remedy the situation or whatever, whatever the dog's, you know, frustration level is that high, um, if it is that high, you're, it, it doesn't matter if you interrupt the behavior or not. It's just, it's not going to have an impact on, on behavior or lifetime learning. Yeah, no, I, I agree. On, I agree on that. So, um, okay. So we will wrap it up. So any last statements or comments from you, Maggie? No. See if I make it out of the fires. <laughs> yeah, good luck to you on that. So we want to thank everybody for listening to this. Uh, hopefully we'll add up the most more egregious, nightmarish parts of this. Um, if you like this podcast, please like, rate, review, share us. Um, I've actually had people contact me through Facebook or through my website. Um, if you email me, please check your email spam box because I always reply to emails, but I'm never sure that emails work. It's better, better to message me on Facebook. All that information will be on our show notes. I want to thank Maggie. I want to, <laughs> good luck, stay safe. Um, and I will see you uh, all later on. Thank, thank you. you.